Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played the voice of Andy Gunderson on Scooby-Doo Shaggy's Showdown. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I was doing good until I, I found out, what was the name of the Scooby-Doo show? Shaggy Showdown? Shaggy's Showdown. Yeah, that was a fascinating process because I don't know how if people know how these kind of cartoons are made, but you go in and you record the cartoon, right? You you do the voice of the cartoon and they have the script there, but that isn't where it ends. The animators go and they take a cartoon like Scooby-Doo, right? And they animate it and then you have to do ADR to the cartoon character's mouth. So as you huh. as you know, the cartoon characters on Scooby-Doo are are very kind of uh well, how would you say? You, you know, they're not a lot of frames per inch. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of drawn in that kind of broad style, but you still have to match what you say to the character's mouth, even though it it isn't an actual representation of someone talking. And it's very interesting. Uh, it, it, Stanislavski helps a lot when you do that. Yeah, it's it interesting. Uh, my understanding is in a conventionally animated film, they do the voice recording first and then animate to that, right? Well, I did. You, you've done other. You've done other animated films where they do that, right? I did the Pixar, uh, the Toy Story of Terror for for that. That took like three years, and and for that you do the voice, then they animate to to the voice. They even will film in some case you doing right. the talking and then they animate to the film and and so when later in the process as they edit the film and then you have to redo the voice to fit it to fit the words in you are dealing with a very highly evolved uh, uh, process of over several years but with Scooby-Doo you have one shot of doing the lines and then you have one shot of going in and matching uh, your lines to what they've animated, but it's always kind of funny to see how they've drawn me. Like in Scooby-Doo, I, I think they accentuated my double and triple chin. I was bald, I think, in it. But but I'm always interested in, uh, like in Peabody and Sherman, they said that they based that cartoon directly on my appearance. Yeah, mm. yeah, just look at my appearance in that show and you'll know why sometimes I, I drink late at night. <laughs> Well, Stephen, uh, we are in the third episode of this new season of The Tobolowski Files, uh, and you can, of course, find all of our episodes at TobolowskiFiles.com. And as we're getting into this third episode, a.k.a. uh, Tobolowski Files episode 74, you know, it is April as it's being released right now, uh, and the first quarter of 2017 is already over. The first three months, 2017 already over. Uh, and it has gone by in a flash, it seems. You know, it's gone by really quickly. Um, I have a significant other who encourages me to uh, make goals, you know, for uh, the year, but also like each quarter so that you can kind of look back and see that this progress has been made. And, and have, um, you, have you been good with these goals? Because I may have told you I had someone in my acting class and 
the first question they asked me was, what is the real David Chen like? And I think one way we would know is if you kept your goals. I mean, what are your goals? Well, I'll tell you one goal that I've pretty much kept up and I'm pretty proud of is uh, I decided to go on a keto diet. You know what a keto is? I think so. Um, it does it have to do with sugar or something? Yeah, you cut down the amount of carbs you take in until you're only eating about 30 to 40 grams of carbs a day. Uh, for for comparison, uh, a 12-ounce can of soda typically contains about 42 grams of carbs. So uh, you basically are eating the en- amount of carbs and sugar in a 12-ounce can of soda, but you're spreading it out through an entire day. Yeah, I, I've maintained that pretty closely. Uh, maintained that pretty closely for a month. I'm up to like a little bit higher than 30 to 40 grams right now, but uh, I lost 10 pounds since the last time I saw Yikes. you. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I've uh, really gotten some stuff done at least. How about you, Stephen? What are some New Year's resolutions you made this oh, year? Oh God, David, <laughs> don't ask. Look, if there's one thing we all know, it's that the future is uncertain, with a few exceptions. For example, I know with a degree of certainty that I will break my New Year's resolutions by the beginning of February. But I don't consider this a failure. One constant in human nature is that our mouths will always be bigger than our date books. We always believe we have more time and more energy than we have. But I think this is a sign of optimism and a key to mental health. I always celebrate breaking my resolutions as a triumph of instinct over will. Not all of us have to peer through a glass darkly to see what lies ahead. I do happen to know some of the future. Not because of any ESP I may possess, but because of my age. I have acquired that rarest of possessions, experience. Experience narrows the field, unless you're a masochist, but then it helps you target your next regret. I know, for example, I will never pitch in the big leagues. That ship has sailed. I know I will never ride a horse again. Some mistakes you only make twice. And I know, with enormous certainty, I will not write a screenplay. Every amateur card player has a tell. For me, the tell of someone who is inexperienced in Hollywood is the desire to write a screenplay. I wrote one once. Well, (laughs) several of them. I wrote several of them, actually. Most of them are sitting in a box in storage waiting for me to die, forcing my children to hire a professional cleaning crew to throw them away. You see, that's the horrible thing about screenplays. They don't get made, and you can't throw them away. They represent too much work and too many dreams. If a screenplay has promise, they're sometimes optioned by producers who give you notes on how to rewrite them. Producers love to give notes on screenplays. It enables them to deduct lunch as a business expense, so they have a financial incentive to keep you on the hook. After delivering a dozen new drafts over the years, you finally get the note that the script was probably better in the first version. That comes right before the phone call that the project is not going forward. They usually don't even send you a fruit basket. Sidebar. Fruit baskets are important. They are the tell as to how close you were to being in a successful project. Sometimes... You get great things in a fruit basket, like fruit, pistachio nuts, bottles of wine. Sometimes you get odd things, like fruit leather and sriracha-coated chickpeas. 
Then you know you weren't even close to getting a job. Once I got a gift basket that only had a bottle of coconut water on a bed of straw. But that was from Comedy Central, so I still chalked it up as a win. Writing screenplays weren't a complete loss. The process was instructive. I wrote one screenplay that I really thought had potential. A friend set up a meeting with a friend of his at Warner Brothers. The friend of a friend template is always good for getting things made. As one producer told me, if you can't screw your friends, who can you screw? I was nervous about the meeting. I didn't know what to do. My friend patted me on the back and said, Hey, Stephen, you tell stories. Just tell the story of the movie. After an hour and a half meeting, the extremely patient executive said, Stephen, next time tell the elevator version of the movie. I had no idea what the elevator version was. He explained to me it's the version of the movie you can tell someone riding on an elevator to the second floor. He said use images people already understand, like Davy Crockett in Vietnam or Dirty Harry in the Old West. Stephen, all people want is the essence. That lesson has proved to be one of the truest things I ever learned. All people want is the essence. In everything. In art, love, music, ideas. What the essence of a thing is has been speculated on for centuries. The closest I've come to understanding it is that something's essence is made up of two components. What is seen and what is hidden. That's the essence of jokes. A joke is comprised of what is seen, also known as the setup, and what is hidden, the punchline. Here is an example. How do you catch a unique rabbit? Unique up on it! <laughs> it's great. It's hilarious. It, what is seen invites us into a logical construction of the world of rabbits. We know they are nervous by nature. We know any rabbit would be hard to catch, especially a unique rabbit. But it is human nature to want to know what is hidden. So we listen with interest to the answer of the joke, even though we suspect there will be no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. What we get for our energy is surprise, an answer that was hidden in plain sight. It's a play on the word unique, and we laugh at the truth of the essential lesson provided by the union of the seen and the hidden that language is as untrustworthy as rabbits. Dramatic literature can be seen to be the revelation of what is hidden, be it the unseen crimes of the past in Oedipus Rex, or the conflict of the gods affecting the fate of men in the Iliad. Shakespeare builds his plays on revealing what is hidden, and it doesn't matter if he writes a tragedy or a comedy. The warnings of a ghost in Hamlet is just as compelling as the secret world of the fairies in the forest in A Midsummer Night's Dream. The hidden is at the center of every form of storytelling, from Charles Dickens revealing a secret benefactor in Great Expectations to a poor weatherman trapped in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, realizing time has stopped in Groundhog Day. The ancient Greeks were driven to explore what was hidden either through drama or science. 
Aristotle sought to categorize the world. He saw that what we encounter break down into two major groups. There are the things that are better known to us than they are to themselves. It would be rocks, trees, leaves, frogs. These could be observed, they could be weighed and measured, and they are subject to the laws of physics. The second main category was for things that are better known to themselves than they are to us. These are things that by nature are hidden. Aristotle said these are not subject to the laws of physics. They belong to the realm of metaphysics. Footnote. The word metaphysics has taken on a different meaning than Aristotle intended. Now when we think of metaphysics, we think of palm reading and ghosts or Ouija boards. Meta, for Aristotle, just meant after. It was a study you should take up after you study physics. Much in the same way the rabbis of the Middle Ages warned that one must master the Torah before delving into the mysticism of the Kabbalah. Aristotle says that since the objects of metaphysics cannot be scientifically observed, their properties are not easily known. Therefore, the focus of metaphysics should be confined to the study of the essence of things. Aristotle warns that understanding something's essence is elusive and could lead to aporiae, which is Greek for having your thinking being tied up in knots. And that is not a joke. That is the technical philosophical term for thinking so much your head hurts. Without tying any brains in knots, I think Aristotle was trying to say that our lives are composed of unequal amounts of what we know, what we think we know, and what we don't know. This is the essence of advertising. You take something that you know is good, like a woman in a bikini, and you mix it with something you don't know, like snow tires. Then we think we know them both. Understanding the world is complicated. Take any fact that appears simple on the surface. For example, acting is a terrible profession. And I don't mean terrible in the colloquial sense of meaning no good. I mean it in the Merriam-Webster OED usage, meaning monstrous, sickening, grotesque, unspeakable, hideous, and deplorable. And it's also no good. But here's a brief story to illustrate. It was 1988. My career was just beginning. I had just finished shooting Great Balls of Fire in Memphis. I got back to Los Angeles, and I got two big jobs. I got a regular role on a sitcom about the Old West called Hot Prospects. And two weeks after the pilot was to shoot, I was to fly to Canada to play a major role in a new Mel Gibson Goldie Hawn action vehicle, Bird on a Wire. Now, this was all big news, but nothing was as big as my personal life because now I was married. My girlfriend, Anne, had become my wife, Anne, and she was with child. I was going to be a father. It was the dawn of the age of Stephen. I started rehearsal on the sitcom. It featured a very promising young actor named George Clooney. George was considered to be full of potential. He just finished a successful stint on Roseanne. At lunch, George shook his head in his self-deprecating way and described his meeting with studio executives. You know what they called me, George said? Lightning in a bottle. George laughed and continued, that's me, 
lightning in a bottle. You know what that means? I'm the first guy they're going to fire. And he could have been. Any one of us could have been axed. The show was painfully unfunny. We were in what is known in showbiz terms as a disaster. In this case, the executives didn't take their frustrations out on the actors. They fired the director. We were called to a cast meeting, and they gave us the news. We were going to start rehearsing again. The awfulness crept up on me as they outlined our new plan of action. We weren't just going to reshoot the show. The new director was going to rewrite, reblock, then reshoot, which added eight more days to our schedule. The day the pilot was to shoot now was the day I was supposed to be starting the movie in Canada. My agents got on the phone to see if the shoot day of the television show could be moved up or my first day on the movie could be moved back. No and no. Producers on both projects would not compromise. One of the executive producers from the television show came into my dressing room and told me calmly that if I left for Canada, I would be sued for breach of contract. The production office for Bird on a Wire called and demanded to know if I was going to do the television show. I had 48 hours to tell them if I was getting on the plane as planned. If they didn't hear from me, I would be recast and sued for any additional costs they incurred. So I called the Screen Actors Guild, my union. I paid dues all of those years for help just at a time like this, right? Maybe not. A representative from the Guild said they didn't get involved with personal disputes like this. Personal, I said. This is business. Well, not for us, the SAG representative told me. Why not, I asked. You're making too much money. You're getting $30,000 for the pilot. Our rule says that if you make over $10,000 on a pilot, you have to get your own lawyer. Well, that's crazy, I said. No one has offered less than $10,000 for a regular role on a television show. Sorry. Okay, I'll remember this next time you guys ask me to pay for dues. I wouldn't go that route, Stephen, said the SAG representative. Oh, you wouldn't? No. If you don't pay your dues, the guild will drop you. Then you won't be able to work. You'll lose your agent. You should get a lawyer. And be sure to pay your dues. Sorry. He hung up. Anne was not pleased that we were probably going to have to use the $30,000 we needed to start our new family to hire a lawyer. That turned out to be a non-issue. The television show refused to pay me. One of the producers told me they were withholding my fee until I shot the show. I was given the number of an entertainment lawyer. She was very cheerful on the phone and advised me that she would represent me for $400 an hour. She told me not to worry. This kind of scheduling problem happens all of the time. Well, what's going to happen, I asked. Well, it's pretty predictable, she said, that networks always play hardball. Well, what can I do? Not much, she said. Networks always win because they have more time, more money, and more lawyers than any actor can have, especially a small fish like you. No offense. None taken. Her advice was that I could talk to her senior partner who charged $600 an hour. He had more experience in these things. I knew I was going to regret it, but I said yes. She handed the phone over to the $600-an-hour man who must have been standing right beside her. 
Hello, Stephen. So you're in a bit of a situation. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I've never talked to anyone who makes $600 an hour. Has our time started yet? Yes. It started when I said hello. Okay, then. Well, then, if you don't mind, let's just, let's just get to the advice part of the conversation. Well, of course. Of course. You should be prepared to lose one way or another. Now it's just a matter of minimizing the damage. There was a pause. Wait, wait, is that it? I asked. Yes, that's it. Uh, thank you. Can you hand the phone back over to my $400 lawyer? Well, you get charged for the entire hour anyway. Anything else you want to know from me? Uh, sure. Have you been? I'm good. Being an entertainment lawyer is always exciting. I bet. Yeah. Well, that's it. Can you hand the phone back over to Debbie now? I don't want to get carried away and end up having to pay for another hour. He laughed and said, I understand. Debbie came back on the line. She suggested I work for a compromise. The only way I could do that was by playing hardball just like them. She said being nice and doing the right thing was unimportant right now. I had to be a bigger inconvenience to them than they were to me. She told me not to show up for work until they hand-deliver my check and I deposit it. She told me to be a jerk about it. She said, tell them they have to send a limo to bring me to work. Tell them that I will shoot the pilot according to the original time period specified in the contract. No extra days. And she said, Stephen, no matter what, Do the movie in Canada. Call their office right now and tell them everything has been worked out. Sorry for the trouble. You should do the movie even if you're sued. Movies are more important than television shows. And that's it. Call me if you need anything else. So I called Canada and said, book my flight. I called the producer of the television show and told him I was not coming to work until someone brought me a check, and I didn't even have to be an asshole about it. The producer hung up on me anyway. For the first time in my life, I did not go to work as called. I sat at home in horrifying silence, thinking about all of the cast, all of the crew inconvenienced by me. And the worst part of it all was I didn't know if what I was doing was right or wrong. I couldn't afford any more calls to the lawyers, so I called my agent for guidance. And here is where the story takes a turn for the worst. I talked to my agent's assistant, a very kind and sympathetic man. He said, well, I'm just going to see if Richard's available. He had a meeting this morning, but just hang in there, Stephen. We're going to work this out somehow. I'm going to put you on hold and look for him. My agent's assistant pressed the mute button, but somehow he didn't. For some reason, the button didn't press, and I heard everything. I heard the assistant turn in his chair to my agent, and here's the conversation as far as I remember it. Richard, it's Stephen Tobolowsky. He's calling about hot prospects again. I'm not in, my agent said. The assistant continued, but he's called ten times today. I feel like we're just tossing him around like a football. We are just tossing him around like a football. Well, isn't there anything we could do? Like what? We have dozens of contracts with CBS. We're not going to hurt that relationship for this. This is peanuts. Tell him I'm not in. The assistant came back on the line. Hey, Stephen, uh, sorry, 
Richard is already in that meeting. I'll leave him a message, and he'll call you as soon as he gets out. Hey, Adam, hold up. I just have to tell you, you know when you just press the mute button? You didn't press the mute button. I heard everything. I know Richard is there. I know I'm peanuts. I know you're going to protect CBS, so put them on. At least you won't have to pass me around like a football anymore. Pause. Adam pressed the mute button. Again, it did not press. I heard, Richard, the phone wasn't on hold. Stephen heard everything. He wants to talk to you. I heard something that sounded like, oh, fuck, somewhere off in the distance. My agent picked up the phone and said, so, what are you going to do? I was silent. My agent waited patiently. My brain sped through a series of non-existent calculations, and then I said, nothing, Richard. I'm going to do nothing. All right. And he hung up. The television show hand-delivered a check for $6,000. They told me I would get the rest when I finished our shoot. They never paid me. Our executive producer told me to sue them if I wanted the rest of the money. I pre-taped my role a day ahead of schedule. When I finished, I went straight to the airport and started bird on a wire the next day, and I was almost fired after shooting my first scene. A couple months later, Anne gave birth to our first boy, Robert, and George Clooney became one of the biggest stars in the world. I love this story. Not for the sheer unrelenting awfulness of it. In its essence, it was very instructive. Here were some of the main lessons I gleaned. One, good times are never here to stay, so open a savings account. Two, whenever you call a lawyer, you are in Act 5 of a tragedy. Remember, the last line of defense is always you. Three, Victory is surviving. A moral victory is surviving without paying commission. Four, getting even only exists in movies. Five, don't trust telephones. Six, show business is terrible. But for writers, this story has another dimension. It presents the listener with several different levels of engagement. On the most basic level, the story is interesting because it mentions George Clooney. It's also about show business. Show business has always had the lure of the exotic. On the next level, the story grabs us because it is scary. Terror is compelling. Whether it's packaged as a real housewives from anywhere or the ice capades, we are always drawn to stories of people who fall down. For me, though, the greatest moment of engagement, the moment of all moments, is when my agent's assistant presses the mute button and it doesn't work, because that is when we hear what is hidden. That moment completes the essence of the story. Mystery may fascinate, but what compels us is to know what is hidden. What is hidden is the seed of every lie. It's the hope of every prayer. And it's why they never show all of the monster until the end of the movie.
Aristotle was a scientist. He doesn't deal with societal aspects of knowing something. Whether you're interested in physics or metaphysics, it's always easier to believe in something when someone else believes in it too. And I'm not talking about just the large forces that shape our lives like gravity, love, virtue, or evil. I'm talking about the little things like are SpaghettiOs really spaghetti? Is top ramen really food or just an interesting form of salt? Are low-rise socks part of the future or part of the past? If you believe in Bertrand Russell's theorem that there is a limit to knowledge, and you might as well because one of the limits is understanding Bertrand Russell, then you're always dealing with a finite set of what you know and what is hidden. So, what goes in the set? I don't think we necessarily fill our consciousness with what is useful or what is kind or even what makes sense. The one constant is that our finite set is filled with what we believe in. If you're the only person that believes in something, you're either Stephen Hawking or someone who lives on a beach in Santa Monica. Most of us need corroborating evidence. It doesn't matter what the object of belief is. Many ideas become a part of our lives simply by the weight of consensus. When I was in college, the Earth was supposed to get a flyby from the comet Kahootek. Never heard of it? Don't worry. It never heard of itself either. The approaching comet created many passionate theories as to what was going to happen when it passed by the Earth. The two most popular options were enlightenment or the end of the world. Songs were written Astronomers were guests on radio shows for the only time in their lives. At Henry's Diner in the morning, my fellow drama students talked Comet nonstop over breakfast. They wondered what the first signs of enlightenment would be. And if it were the ability of seeing the world beyond our world, would that just make them more confused? They wondered if the end of the world would happen all at once or if we would lose television reception first. They argued with each other with the conviction usually reserved for discussions of who was more important, Simon or Garfunkel. The day finally arrived. The comet was due to pass the Earth around 2 a.m. Texas time. And we all stayed up. Some people sat on their cars, looking at the night sky, waiting for the big show. By 2.15, we were pretty certain there would be no enlightenment. We were just as stupid as we were earlier in the day. The next morning at Henry's, believer and non-believer alike were a little disappointed that the earth was still here. I was disappointed too, and I knew the flyby would amount to nothing, but I still stayed up that night. I was motivated by the excitement of other people's beliefs. Apparently, believing in the apocalypse was more fun than believing in nothing at all. Whether I liked it or not, the Kamakahutek went into my finite set. It sits there to this day along with other curious objects of belief like the loyalty of cats, cholesterol medication, Google Maps, and the integrity of judging on Chopped. I know we end up believing in a lot of nonsense. That's a given. What I realized, thanks to Bertrand Russell, was that no matter what beliefs we add, we're still always dealing with a finite set. There will always be a separation between what we choose and what we reject. That makes our set holy. In spite of any beliefs we may or may not have in a greater deity, holiness 
is the price of consciousness. I assumed that once something was placed in our finite set, it would stay there forever. Kahootek is proof of that. I was surprised when I had an unexpected assault on my set of the holy. It started about two years ago, and it came from an unexpected source. My stories on the Tobolowsky Files. Over the last five years, David Chen and I have released over 70 episodes of True Stories from My Life. That has led to speaking engagements all over the world, most of them in places called Seattle. At the end of some of our shows, David presides over a Q&A with the audience. At one show, I got a question that I found deeply troubling. And it wasn't the nature of the question, which was well-meaning. What was troubling was I had been asking myself the same question for the last several months. A young man asked, Since your stories are from your life, once you tell a story, does it change? Does what change, I asked. The story? No, the young man replied. Do you change? Does your relationship to your life change? I answered without thinking, yes, and I scared myself how quickly I responded. I'm not sure how, but it does, I said. And it was true. I first noticed my feelings toward my past began to change with my stories about Beth, my girlfriend from college. We were together for 16 years. Everyone assumed we would always be together. We weren't. The end of our relationship happened one afternoon. It was quick. There was no drama. Two of our friends were over at the house talking to Beth. I told her I was moving out. My friends helped me pack the car. And I left. Beth stood there a little confused, even curious as to what would happen next. There was almost a feeling that we were writing a play together and trying out an ending to see if it worked as a misdirect. You know, the trouble on the horizon at the end of Act 2. It turned out to be Act 3. We didn't see each other for another 20 years. The end of any friendship creates confusion. The end of friendships in which you did someone else's laundry can be catastrophic. When David Chen approached me about starting the Tobolowsky Files, I debated as to whether I would write any stories about Beth. They were too personal. They had very little to do with movies. David encouraged me to tell whatever stories I had to tell. Miss Hard to Get was the tenth story I wrote and recorded. And it was the first about Beth, and truthfully, I expected it would be the last. As I wrote the story, I laughed a lot. It was such a relief to finally laugh about that relationship. A 19-year-old boy from Texas whose mother still cut his hair, meeting an 18-year-old girl from Mississippi who dreamt of being a pirate on the Brazos River. Laughter is seductive. It often misleads you into thinking you're having a good time. Once the initial joy passed, I wasn't bathed in the warmth of nostalgia. I felt like I was in danger. My first instinct was to stop writing personal stories and write more about movies and being on the set with Steven Seagal. I knew something was wrong when the thought of writing about Steven Seagal was not as scary as option two. But I was a believer of getting back on the horse that threw you. So I pushed through my dread and I wrote several more stories about Beth. I recorded these as podcasts and featured them in my first book, The Dangerous Animals Club. 
That is when I noticed that my relationship with Beth in the present began to change. I hadn't spoken to her in years. I had no idea where she was or how to reach her, but I felt like I had to. It was important to let her know I was writing about our relationship. Anne assured me it was the right thing to do, so I tracked Beth down through friends. She agreed to meet with me for lunch. I was terrified to see her, but I didn't know why I was afraid. She walked up to the restaurant wearing a big sun hat, and when she looked up at me, the brim of the hat lifted, and I saw her face for the first time in 20 years. It was the face of everything I had loved earlier in my life, and now it was the face of someone both familiar and strange, lost and found. Beth still didn't know why I wanted to have lunch with her. I suspected she thought I had cancer and was doing the goodbye to her. As I looked at her across the table, I knew I was different. Not just because I was 20 years older and married to someone else and had two children in high school. My essence had changed. What if the process of writing my stories didn't recall the past, but changed it? What if I had accidentally conducted an exercise in metaphysics and had performed some type of alchemy? I wasn't sure if I turned lead into gold or gold into lead. My hurt feelings were gone. I wasn't sure this was a good thing. I had clung to them for so long. I defined myself by them. I enjoy taking them out of the dark box of my soul and play with them from time to time. And now they were transformed into something else, something that had no name. My finite set had been altered. My holy articles had been broken. The process of how this could have happened remained a mystery until this year. I went to Seattle again to tell stories at a town hall event. In the hotel lobby, on the way to the elevators, another young man stopped me and asked the now familiar question, if telling true stories about my life changed me. And I told him yes, but not in the ways I expected. The young man surprised me with a follow-up question. He said, Are you saying telling a true story changes the truth? As I spoke, I began to see an answer that had been hidden in plain sight since my lunch with Beth. I said, telling a true story doesn't change the facts of the story. It changes your relationship to the facts. You see them from a different angle. I never pretend that I'm presenting a journalistic account of what happened when I was five or when I fell in love or when I had heart surgery. Everyone has his or her version of what happened in the past. We have to. Not to flatter ourselves, but so we can survive. It was as if God pressed the mute button and I heard everything. Our stories teach us how to endure. They change as what we need to survive changes. Maybe that's why the Kamakahutek is still in my finite set. It's there to remind me that in the end, there are only two roads. One leads to enlightenment, the other to the end of the world.
As to the question, could telling a true story change the truth and even change who you are? There is now scientific evidence that perhaps the answer is yes. Dr. Morris Moscovich of the University of Toronto explains that memory is not one entity. The past is not a big filing cabinet where you retrieve the people, the places, and things gone by. Recalling your fifth birthday party is a tricky proposition. Memories come in different forms and are created in different parts of the brain. The hippocampus creates what Dr. Moscovich calls episodic memory. These are memories that are rich in detail. These are memories like the exploits I wrote about in the Dangerous Animals Club, of the walks I took with the pooch, of the bouquet of wildflowers I gave to my mother when I was five, of the shoebox of paints I got from Roy Scott as a birthday present. However, once you retrieve an episodic memory, Dr. Moscovich says it is often chemically recoded as a semantic memory. This type of memory is stored in the neocortex area of the brain. Semantic memories are not as rich in detail. They only capture the gist of an event. After several retrievals, various fragments of a memory accumulate. We try to mentally paste the general pictures of the past together. This could lead to conflated memories, conflicting memories, and confusion. This process could explain why multiple tellings of my stories about Beth could have chemically changed my perception of our 16 years together. But it creates another question. No story is a complete retelling of an event. The editorial process is important. We ultimately choose what is said and what is not said. And that leads not so much to a question, but to a mystery. What guides our choice? I got a call from my brother after Christmas. He said our father had taken a turn for the worst. His memory had so deteriorated he couldn't remember his past. He would ask the same question several times in a row. He slept in his room all day, and worst of all, he didn't want to eat. I went to Dallas as soon as I could. Sometimes just seeing a new face or having a break from the routine has picked up Dad's spirits. Dad is about to turn 95. He imagined he would spend what is sadistically termed the golden years doing what he liked best, watching sports. But nature threw him a curveball. Dad lost his eyes to glaucoma and macular degeneration. Then he broke his hip and lost his ability to walk. Next came his hearing. Doctors have said that our senses aren't just a matter of having functioning eyes and ears. When the brain has continued difficulty processing something, it shuts down those receptors. Our inability to visualize Dad's world of continual deprivation affected us as well. We became victims of psychological blindness. I got into town. At first, I was relieved. We got Dad to eat some enchiladas. He asked about my boys and about Anne, and I thought my brother might have exaggerated Dad's condition. But on subsequent visits, I saw that, as usual, Paul was right. Dad was shutting out anything that had given him joy. It was as if he were so tired of groping in the blackness he had stopped reaching altogether. I came to Dallas with the galley of my new book, My Adventures with God. I intended to give it to Rosie, the woman who lived across the hall from my father. 
She befriended him. She has meals with him. She helps him without embarrassing him. She told me on one visit, he's a very good man. He's a very lonely man. He misses your mom. And then Rosie looked around the dining hall and said, well, everyone in here misses someone. Paul saw the book and asked what I planned to do with it. I told him about handing it over to Rosie. I said, maybe she could read him some stories for entertainment. There's a lot in there he'll remember. Stories about us, stories about mom, about our kids. Dad may like it. Well, why don't you read it to him, Paul said. Well, I could. I just don't know if he's up for that right now. Well, you're the actor. I'm sure you could outdo Rosie when it comes to a dramatic reading. Give it a try. I was a little embarrassed for having overlooked the obvious. Sure, why not? We went into Dad's room as Paul announced brightly, We have a big surprise for you today, Papa. And what is that? Dad said. Stephen has something for you to hear. It's from his new book. Dad shrugged and said, Well, if we have to. I picked the story, The Garden on Orchid Lane. It was about Dad's father and mother, his brothers Sam and Sylvan, and his sister Sarah, all who've passed on now. It wasn't one of the more dramatic or funny stories in the book, but I thought it was one of the sweetest. I pulled the chair close so Dad could hear, and I began reading. Upon first mention of Grandfather, a huge smile broke across Dad's face. He began to laugh as I read about walking into their old living room when I was five with Grandfather and Dad's brothers shouting at the television set watching wrestling. Dad shook his head as the little me ran into the kitchen and hugged Grandmother around her waist while she was cooking chicken soup and lima beans. Dad wiped tears from his eyes and said, It's true. It's true. She was always cooking. His sister Sarah entered the story with a gift for me, a paint-by-number set featuring the picture of a beautiful garden. Dad rested his head on his hand and sighed. Sarah was so wonderful. She loved everyone. She was a great lady. As I read, there was a moment when the Sarah from my story and the Sarah from our memories merged, and the result was a presence that was both real and not real something that existed beyond our notion of time. It was as if our common memory enabled us to experience a moment of eternity. If Dr. Moscovich's theories are true, any time we recall a memory, we lose a little bit of ourselves. It was a small price to pay to see my father laugh. I've always thought laughter was a form of courage. To look at the inevitability of death and say, you're still not going to ruin my day. The most visible sign of our essence may be our smile. To be accurate, Aristotle never uses the word essence in any of his works. He uses the phrase tuti in eni, which literally means the what it was to be. This concept confused ancient Roman translators, so they substituted Aristotle's phrase with the word Essenitiato, which over the centuries became our word, essence. The what it was to be may describe the phenomenon better. It indicates a process and not a thing, the meeting of past and future, of real and imagined. 
Aristotle's metaphysical world was not as difficult to find as I first thought. It's in our laughter. It is our foot in the sunlight that encourages us to take another step. Our stories may not be the true portraits of our lives, but they are surely the portraits of the way we wanted our lives to be. That was What is Hidden, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Find more episodes of his podcast at tobolowskyfiles.com. Uh, find Stephen's new website at stephentobolowsky.com, and find all of my stuff at davechen.net. But, uh, Stephen, people can actually see you live in the weeks to come, right? It's happening. The book... Uh my Adventures with God is officially being released April 17th, and I start the book tour. And I just want to give a few cities out. If you're in this area, maybe you come by and see me. If you want, get a signed copy of the book, and I'll be doing stories from the book. I'll be in Dallas, Texas, April 18th. I'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the 19th. I'm going to be at the Los Angeles Festival of Books, April 23rd. Then I go up to San Francisco the 24th of April, Seattle, the 25th, and David, maybe you could buy me dinner there in Seattle. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll just stop there, and uh, next week I'll give you some more dates. But that, if you're in any of those cities, please come on by, say hello. And if you, yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to uh, checking you out when you're here. Yeah. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, and if you want more details about where Stephen's going to be, stephentobolowski.com. Spell it for us, Stephen. It has to be S T E P H E N T as in Tom O B as in boy O L O W. S-K-Y. That's the Russian spelling. And thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. 